Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I've returned to the New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel, to discuss Indigenous visions, rediscovering the world of Franz Boas, with Dr. Isaiah Laredo Wilner, who is a POC postdoctoral fellow at the University of Chicago, as well as Ned Blackhawk, Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Dr. Wilner and Professor Blackhawk, welcome. To begin, I would like to discuss the cover and your selection of, of the cover. Can you uh, comment really briefly on both the cover of Indigenous Visions, this wonderful collection, and uh, your reasons for selecting the cover. I'm glad you spotted that. It's a beautiful piece of art by Maynard Johnny Jr., who's a Northwest Coast artist, and it's called iPod, spelled E-Y-E pod. And I guess it appealed to us because it uh, features four killer whales, or orcas, in different colors, and each of the fins depicted has an eye design in it. So you get this idea of um, multiple visions or a diversity of visions. And of course, the Northwest Coast has a very special place in Boazian anthropology. And in this picture, you see the green, brown, blue, and yellow orca whales. So I don't know, but to me, it was kind of showing maybe earth, forest, sea and sun or sky so it's all the realms of experience coming together in a kind of ecological vision um and additionally the image conveys a uh, familiar representation from the conference that we held in a few years prior to the uh, publication of the anthology that um, circulated uh, pretty widely across at least our campus community and series of academic networks. So the uh, continuity between many of the exciting papers and paper, uh, conversations and uh, presentations that we had at the conference um, also um, hopefully um, can, 
is conveyed through the not just image um, of the book itself, but also the uh, dynamic of papers and essays that are in the anthology itself. We'll return to the conference that started all this in a second. But first, you introduced the collection by arguing that the mind of primitive man, uh, Boas's uh, first study in his 1911 anthropology trifecta, features a title that encapsulates the opportunities as well as the limitations inherent in the transcultural study of diversity, identity, and belonging. For introductory purposes, can you discuss Boas and recent re-evaluations of classically defined attributes of Bosnian anthropology? I think Levi-Strauss, Claude Levi-Strauss, pretty much nailed it when he called Boas the last of those intellectual giants produced by the 19th century, the likes of whom will probably never be seen again. So Boas, it's almost difficult to describe because he impacted so many different Fields. He was a major mind of modernism. He has, I think, a foundational position, if you will, on the tree of knowledge. And there's other people, Levi Strauss, for example, who, you know, also uh, were great minds and so on, who themselves would look to Boaz, you know, as a kind of founding figure for them. So in that sense, he's generative. But whether it be the rise of the modern culture concept, um, the critique of colonialism in an empire, um, his, his writings and thought on democracy and violence, his work with the core populations that make up North America, natives, descendants of slaves, as well as immigrants, um, his articulation of a vision of diversity and of dignity that has animated movements for self-determination and survival. So he shaped a, a great array of cultural fields. But I think, you know, in the final analysis for Boaz, like for Du Bois, ultimately it was his contribution to the idea of race, to the critique of race and to the struggle against racism uh, that makes him so important as an intellectual for us today. And Boaz had a particularly longstanding, um, often overlooked and essential relationship with sets of Native American interlocutors who helped uh, generate what we now consider to be not just Boazian anthropological thinking, but the broader field of what um, many would term cultural relativism. Um, and as um, the introduction, introduction to the essays suggests, as do several of the essays, including uh, one by my uh, co-editor, Isaiah Wilner, the um, relationship he particularly had with Qual Youth, Northwest Coast uh, community members, uh, particularly uh, within the Hunt family, um, enabled him through extensive uh, uh, participatory activities, um, communications, correspondences, um, these uh, essential relationships he developed with um, uh, Northwest Coast communities enabled him to ultimately distance himself from his received categories of analysis and wisdoms on issues like culture and race um, that um, ultimately bred this kind of broader vision of what many of us would often also call multiculturalism. Prior to his um, publications, prior to his influence across what we're terming the Boazian circle, prior to his relationships with so many um, prominent uh, cultural critics, 
race, culture, a hereditary um, identity, many of these kind of categories that we now see as so uh, sociologically determined or contextually um, um, based were believed to be received inherently or essentially or uh, genetically even. So race at the time, along with empire, were fundamental categories of global organization of difference that Boaz, through the relationships he had with so many people, helped to dismantle. And so this uh, collection is really in that spirit. It's not a celebration of a single individual or sets of particular works, but a reflection on a century, essentially, of thought uh, from a whole variety of sources. So you've already uh, touched on this a little bit, but uh, you introduced the collection by noting that in September 2011, uh, to commemorate the centennial of Boas's watershed publication, The Mind of Primitive Man, a group of scholars representing many of the disciplines and several of the communities impacted by Bosnian research met in New Haven to discuss this complex legacy. The discussion was spirited and at times difficult. Can you elucidate the common understanding that emerged? one that views Boas as a formulator in both theory and practice of what might be termed global cultural studies. And you've already alluded to this, but um, please try to uh, describe global cultural studies. I think there was a goal in, in just the formulation of this conference to begin with, to get to the stories that were recorded and archived by the Boazian circle, if you will, by this network of scholars of which Boaz was a kind of node that had been erased or marginalized in the official discourse or the received discourse. So, and part of this was the idea that, you know, uh, Boazian anthropology had a particularly thick relationship with indigenous communities for a very long time. And so, through Boazian anthropology, indigenous peoples have exercised an intellectual influence that came to have wide-ranging global repercussions that had not been significantly researched. So to begin with, I think we wanted to sort of bridge uh, some literatures that had not, and some communities that often had been siloed and weren't necessarily speaking with one another. So part of it was an effort to bring together Native history, European history, intellectual history, anthropology, and so on, and to see what might be learned uh, by studying this whole network, but prioritizing uh, the actual communities under scientific study, and to look at the ways that racialized and so-called racialized and colonized peoples, peoples who were supposedly uh, subjects of scientific study, in fact utilized anthropology for their own intellectual purposes, um, disseminating messages in the opposite direction. So I think that was part of the original you know, goal of the conference was to begin to look at um, not only the history of anthropology, but the history of modern thought from a transnational and multiracial perspective that would move beyond just merely prioritizing state ideas toward a kind of global history of ideas that would look at the interactions of all ideas as they came to circulate through Boazian anthropology. So I think that was something that we came to the conference you know, with as a kind of goal, 
and began to work through uh, through that original meeting. And some of the tensions that um, <clears throat> you alluded to were not just disciplinary, but also um, in many ways uh, genealogical. Uh, so many um, fields of inquiry have been shaped over time by the sets of individuals under inquiry here. Most notably, obviously, not just Boaz, but uh, those prominent ethnographers and cultural anthropologists with whom he worked, and particularly those whom he trained, including Ruth Benedict and um, Albert, Alfred Krober and Robert Lowy, and sets of uh, Columbia University trained anthropologists. Um, the anthropologists have historically uh, claimed Boaz um, fairly exclusively as a founder of their modern discipline. And professionally speaking, that possessive um, investment hasn't always allowed for the types of conversations that uh, this anthology and conference uh, in, have um, created. Um, so some of the tensions have often rev have revolved around the relative familiarity, for example, people might have with uh, the corpus of Boaz's works or around his biography or around those um, European uh, cultural thinkers who he, whom he most influenced and was influenced by. So, so we had to kind of disaggregate some of these disciplinary formations. We had a whole range of prominent cultural anthropologists, linguistic anthropologists uh, present, but we had to uh, disaggregate that kind of possessive investment that the, those disciplines have had over this tradition in order, in many ways, to broaden it, to... Um, enable it to uh, recognize the myriad forms of influence that ultimately this community of thinkers and individuals and communities have had upon the making of modern society. So the social networks that shape Boaz, um, as you've already said, are often studied within their respective silos, anthropology, European history, Native studies, African-American studies, and so on. You both wish to get to the interaction between these subjects. Now, after the 2011 conference, how did you select and assemble a group of scholars to deepen the investigation? Well, we had a fairly um, robust community of papers and presentations to return to. And the anthology features many, many of the original conference participants, um, several of whom... Um, have continued their very important work in making these and other types of intellectual contributions. Um, we're very pleased to have, for example, um, Audra Simpson, um, James Tully, um, uh, for example, who both of whom work in the field of Native American um, studies and particularly uh, interrogate the genealogical legacies of colonialism in, in Canadian intellectual circles. Um, they both gave uh, very well-received uh, presentations at the conference and are in the volume as are uh, hosts of others. So it wasn't necessarily a, um, a particularly difficult task finding con uh, contributions, but a, um, a more refined process of determining which contributions 
would be best served together. And um, as you may see, the volume is organized into really a, a four-part a series of interrelated essays around particular themes. Um, Isaiah had a, a lot of um, influence over, as, um, as he should, um, around the, the kind of composition of, of many of these sections. Um, we haven't mentioned yet, but uh, the conference in 2011 was a result of, of his um, largely initiatives in uh, securing funding here at Yale and assembling this kind of um, community of scholars uh, where uh, at the time he was a graduate student and I was on the faculty. So um, these networks we've had um, collectively over the years, uh, we drew upon. Um, and we haven't mentioned it heavily enough, but you know, the discipline of African-American studies is also centrally um, influenced by and has helped uh, shape um, both this conference and the anthology and Eve Dunbar and um, Alondra Nelson previously at the conference and uh, Elizabeth Alexander, um, all were um, presenters um, and or authors and contributors to the volume um, in a way that really um, highlights the dynamic anti-racial uh, critiques that emerge from this uh, community of uh, intellectuals engaging common challenges and finding new strategies uh, within them. Professor Wilner, do you have any, anything to comment on? Maybe just to add on to what Ned was saying, I remember after the conference, Ned and I had a few discussions about sharpening what had come out of the meeting into a focused intellectual project, because the idea was not to have a conference collection, but to have a book that would take on a pointed question. And so we began to think of this idea of a Boazian circle as something that could be more embracing and that could actually reach out to the wide sets, sort of overlapping sets of individuals and communities in, in which Boaz actually participated rather than just narrating a genealogy from teacher to student. And that opened up a number of very interesting uh, opportunities. So, for example, there's a piece by Lewis Gordon on Franz Boas as an Africana philosopher, which looks at these um, very extensive parallels between thinkers such as W.E.B. Du Bois and Boas. And Ned mentioned Eve Dunbar's piece. Uh, we also, there's a piece by Sean Hanretta. Uh, which focuses on Pan-African thinking and, and the role of uh, Pan-African politics, especially the founder or, or uh, progenitor of Pan-Africanism, Edward Wilmot Blyden, and his role in the development of the concept of culture, something that is normally written out of a strict disciplinary history of the culture concept. So, And similarly, the piece uh, by by uh, Christopher Heaney on Julio Teo, looked at the role of an indigenous founding figure of Peruvian archeology span in the transformation of race, um, not only in Peru, but, but beyond Peru. So I think, you know, sort of the animating idea was uh, to get to the contributions of non-state and racialized uh, peoples to the transformation of modern thought and uh, to put it into conversation with Boazian thought, 
and to see if in this history um, that has been archived by the Boazian Circle, there might be an opportunity for a new kind of conversation. So let's talk a little bit about modernity. You both identify Boaz as the founder of modern anthropology and contend that Boaz drew upon what he had learned among native peoples, uh, an alternative approach to modernity. What was this alternative approach, particularly in regards to race, culture, and grammar? Professor Wilner, you can start. The basic view of modernity that Boaz disproved is a self-other concept of modernity, which the modern self is defined as civilized, thus divorced from nature, and the other is the so-called primitive person who's is still under the thrall of, of nature and living a mythological existence of non-historical peoples. Okay, so this is essentially a racialized concept uh, dividing humanity into two groups, those who count and those who don't count, who don't contribute to history. And so by breaking through that binary, Boaz made an incisive contribution that would contribute to a great deal of social change, albeit gradually. And I would say that you know race, culture, and language all contributed certain aspects to that basic argument. But the most fundamental contribution was to disprove the self-other concept, which upholds modernity even today. And as I might add, um, Native American communities have suffered uh, disproportionately from what anthropological thinkers have come to term uh, the denial of co-evilness or the kind of construction of otherness in which certain particular peoples are not only outside of the human family, but interior to it or um, elementally distanced from it from a, a kind of genetic, racial, cultural, or intellectual form. So Boaz's concepts of process and cultural formation um, over time and um, non-hierarchical, generally speaking, um, modes of social organization uh, chipped away at uh, certain types of formation uh, that had intellectually either frozen, uh, distanced, or in many ways denied Native American humanity. And ideas matter in the world in ways that we sometimes lose sight of. And his work um, was occurring in the late 19th century at a time, uh, both in the United States and Canada, when Native American communities were under multiple forms of state and or institutional assaults. Um, and there are sets of ironies to uh, these subjects that are um, relayed and engaged with in the volume itself. Um, but it's incredibly um, um, kind of telling to think that Native American communities in many ways co-opted and or utilized this German-born ethnographer to help them criticize or critique the structures of oppression around them. And most notably among the Northwest Coast Indian communities, the Canadian government had outlawed sets of cultural practices of gift giving that are generally characterized as the potlatch um, through a series of laws now referred to as the potlatch laws, which had particularly uh, destabilized communities' abilities to 
uh, transmit uh, wealth across uh, generations and within communities to hold communal gatherings and engage in sets of cultural practices that many had been involved with for generations. Um, Boaz, in many ways, then um, became a figure in um, criticizing structures of colonialism around uh, Native American communities, um, sometimes even unknowing. And those are the types of ironies, um, historically contingent moments, and ultimately legacies or visions that this volume is trying to uh, resuscitate and engage. Professor Wilner, do you have uh, anything to add? One of the areas in which indigenous influence on modern thought came to be so central, I think, uh, to Boaz is this concept of transformation um, that uh, is so central to Kwakwakiwak thought. So in Kwakwakiwak thought, where Boaz spent 40 years, you know, uh, at times living, doing his research, and also engaging in this extensive uh, ethnographic collaboration with George Hunt and with other members of the community, um, there, um, transformation is at the origin of existence because the people believe themselves to descend from beings who transform out of supernatural uh, animal-like um, ancestors at the dawn of time. Okay, so w- when you do a dance, when when you put on a mask, you're going into a transformational state where you're uh, simultaneously changing and re-entering your state of original connection. So I think when Boaz was exposed to these kinds of ideas, as Ned was mentioning through the potlatch, it had a quite powerful impact on him uh, because he had arrived with a more static conception of culture. That, you know, um, you're born with a certain set of predispositions that come to you either potentially racially, you know, um, through the... Professor Blackhawk, can you comment? I can, but I think in the interest of time, um, the sets of uh, remaining attributes, uh, particularly about um, perhaps other uh, essays in the volume, uh, might be helpful. Um, The potlatch and sets of gift-giving ideas and theories became central to a whole range of philosophical movements that, as uh, we were talking about earlier, helped shape struggles for um, uh, global self-determination or what might be termed decolonization across the 20th century. And it's hard to see um, some of the kind of particular ethnographic practices as that generative, but that's what a series of essays in this volume are particularly aimed at doing. Uh, the Hanretta piece, for example, mentions uh, uh, the kind of influence of eth- ethnographic thinking in um, the formation of Pan-Africanism, um, clearly a subject uh, rooted in anti-colonial and decolonizing uh, ideas, um, the potlatch was ubiquitous across um, French uh, theoretical um, communities in the uh, uh, post-war era. Um, at the time of the Third Republic, many of the student protesters we mentioned in the introduction were um, thinking about alternative forms of sociality, different ideas about community and communal organization. The idea of gift exchange or gift giving or certain types of communal or collective social practices became heavily influential uh, within their thinking and in sets of intellectual ideas thereafter, many of which um, um, have became heavily imprinted in what uh, we, might, we would now call a, a, a 
continental de- uh, deconstructive theory and uh, thinking, um, gift exchange at the heart of the works by Marcel Mauss, which helpfully, uh, which uh, heavily influenced the shaping of Jacques Derrida, uh, among other um, post-structuralists and deconstructive uh, thinkers. So these are not just ethnographic practices occurring in one part of the world, um, but um, uh, uh, a kind of global system of exchange and ideas in which indigenous peoples help to determine the contours of, of modernist thought. So why, uh, can you explain the concept of indigenous uh, visions? You've already, again, alluded to it, but explain it pretty succinctly. And why native people, and again, uh, why native people related to indigenous visions? Why native people in particular? Well, the discipline of anthropology emerged both in Europe and North America at a time when imperial expansion and in the United States, state expansion were occurring with such rapidity that forms of human difference were pressing concerns upon the uh, structures and everyday um, lives of numerous states and state officials. Um, Boaz uh, was German, um, and Germany, like many European nations, uh, were actively engaged in sets of imperial expansions throughout the 19th um, and early 20th centuries um, in the kind of golden era of empires. Many have written about, for example, the British Empire's final uh, expansion territorially in its kind of Commonwealth global reach occurred in the Northwest Coast when British Columbia became the kind of last and final uh, province or region of uh, the Canadian Confederation to undergo things like transportation railway construction and or imperial postal constructions and services. In the United States, uh, territorial expansion um, uh, helped drive uh, uh, various forms of American territorial knowledge about the West from cartography and exploration in the pre-Civil War era to the post-Civil War era and the construction of railroads as well and other forms of territorial settlement. So much so that by the time of the end of the 19th century, um, the American census in 1890 identifies the absence of any unincorporated lands for the first time in American history within the American Republic. So all of these territorial expansionary projects are happening uh, across the 19th century that are bringing so many uh, diverse previously un, um, often um, incorporated and or intellectually um, unfamiliar sets of indigenous communities into the heart of territorial and state governance across the British Empire, across other European empires, across Canada, the United States, and even Mexico, if one were to look at the history of the Porfiriato uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. One sees a growing kind of form of state engagement with indigenous peoples. Anthropology then becomes one of the intellectual, um, if not the primary intellectual organizing um, discipline, form, institution, set of ideas, essentially, for comprehending such diversity. We chose indigenous peoples because of their sedimented 
a foundational position within that intellectual genealogy and disciplinary form, and thus centered the idea of indigenous visions, including the illustrations that we talked about, or the cover art that we talked about earlier, as a way of countering the suggestion that only one community is engaged in a process of engagement and or knowledge production. These were sets of very complex ethnographic landscapes, sets of complex political and colonial landscapes, and sets of ultimately intellectual legacies in which Native American and First Nations peoples in Canada played and continue to play central roles in questioning and or um, challenging normative ideas about humanity, normative ideas about politics, normative ideas about what constitutes a citizen or a subject within these still relatively newly formed state societies. Ideas about democracy, as Tully's essay in particular thinks through in the, um, in the volume, rec- become more complicated when juxtaposed against the longstanding history and one might say enabling conditions of Native American land loss that fueled the rise of settler colonial societies. Uh, we must not simply fall into long-received habits or positions or um, forms of knowledge that take for granted or erase the essential violence and colonialism that have enabled the rise of things like American imperialism and or even democracy. There are histories, there are legacies, there are genealogies that are um, often masked within these uh, received categories of analysis and wisdoms that, uh, that the framework of indigenous visions, we hope, ena- uh, enables us to uh, look past and or uh, engage. Professor Blackhawk and then Professor uh, Dr. Wilner can comment. How do the first four essays collectively advance the notion that Boas's transcultural discourse of enlightenment produced significant, albeit gradual, transformations of racial ideology, but also perpetuated aspects of colonial modernity, particularly in regards to uh, uh, his, particularly regards to indigenous Africana and Europe, European con- concepts of enlightenment? Uh, like transformation, freedom, expression, and evolution. How did this prove crucial to Boas's intellectual development? It's a pretty lengthy question uh, that asks us to think about Boas in a more um, both complex and potentially negative light. I'm fine um, with that form of inquiry and in investigation. Uh, particularly because Boazian anthropology and Boazian thought uh, both still perpetuated a denial and or distancing, um, a denial of Native American um, 
political recognitions and a distancing away from more emancipatory types of policy and or legal um, uh, solutions than um, one might um, uh, one might an- anticipate. Um, and part of the kind of struggle with the discipline of anthropology's fairly exclusive hold on Boaz as a progenitor or kind of founding figure is the complex relationship that anthropology as a discipline itself has held with Native American and and or indigenous people's struggles for justice and liberation. The uh, anthropological thinking of cultural relativism, while um, enlightened and enlightening in many ways, still nonetheless never generated the types of political engagements that one would see by comparison with anti-racial struggles among the African-American community. Um, And it's interesting if we look at certain essays and figures uh, mentioned therein within the volume, we can see this kind of elucidated uh, within both Audre Simpson's piece about the uh, limiting forms of recognitions of Native American political sovereignty and or autonomy. the idea of essentially that tribal communities possess um, and possess then a capacity of self-governance was not something that was immediately resonant among Boazian thinkers, who, um, many, uh, who many of whom uh, came to know certain attributes of cultural pro- production or certain attributes of community heritage, um, but failed to um, utilize them and or organize themselves accordingly for um, broader forms of political or legal uh, reform. So Simpson's piece um, identifies kind of continuities within the kind of uh, earlier forms of American anthropological thinking that are still resonant in texts like The Mind of Primitive Man. Um, And we can see um, in the examination that by Ryan Carr or Carlos Montezuma, um, alternative uh, ways in which Native American intellectuals uh, navigated or were forced to navigate in the case of Kira V. Hill's uh, essay on uh, the first trained American Indian anthropologist, William Jones, fairly tragic uh, life and career um, having to work in the service of the U.S. Imperial Project in the Philippines, where he was ultimately uh, murdered. So. Native American intellectuals and political figures understood that anthropology uh, became a intellectual community that, like other intellectual communities, possessed the power of critiquing the lived realities that so many of their families and communities lived under, but nonetheless found within those intellectual communities and eventually professional associations relatively little um, space for broader forms of political or what we might now call anti-colonial or decolonizing um, uh, ambitions. And it's not incoincidental that Boazian cultural relativism uh, faded across the mid-20th century when the American state engaged Native Americans in very different ways and adopted certain legal practices like termination or 
urban removal called relocation, um, that anthropologists were often involved in sets of uh, policy changes and transformations in which Native American communities uh, were often uh, either distantly or sometimes removed from altogether. So it wouldn't be uncommon in the mid or 20, late 20, uh, the mid to late 20th century for anthropologists to uh, be consultants on sets of policy or ecological or land practices that the U.S. state might be engaged in. And their recommendations and or their uh, policy prescriptions might help shape um, community lives in ways that um, uh, weren't always um, fully understood or shared. This became so pervasive that in the most famous critique of anthropological thinking uh, by um, the Indian activist and uh, intellectual and author Vine Deloria Jr., he had an entire chapter in his manifesto self-titled um, Custer Died for Your Sins on Anthropologists and Other Friends, it was called. And it critiqued very heavily this sense of propri- proprietary um, or possessive investment that so many anthropolog- anthropologists ultimately came to have about Indian peoples, that they had their own disciplines or fields of study, and that they knew these communities elementally. Um, and it's been a century-long struggle in many ways to get certain institutions, not just academic institutions, uh, but museum communities, government agencies like the Smithsonian, to uh, distance themselves or abandon those sense of proprietary holdings. And there would be congressional law, for example, or laws in the 1980s and early 90s that would ultimately end the ability of museum communities to represent Indian peoples in certain ways. And many of those museum communities had been founded by or shaped heavily by anthropological thinking. Um, so the critique that um, that kind of is relatively uh, nascent throughout the collection about Boaz's um, somewhat uh, distant engagement with contemporary Native American struggles for justice ultimately is informed partly by this later century of anthropological intrusion that held and has held m- m- many uh, deleterious effects for Native Americans more broadly. I appreciate you uh, putting those two sections in the first half of the book into dialogue. Dr. Wilner, do you have uh, your contribution uh, is uh, the first essay in the first section of the book. Can you elaborate on your arguments and how they relate to uh, indigenous Africana and European concepts of enlightenment, which, again, proved crucial to Boas's intellectual development. In a previous piece, I had written about the role of the potlatch, the influence of the potlatch in shaping Boas's culture concept. And so I think what I wanted to do in this piece was to look at a different type of issue, which was ethical and methodological. That is, how did the Kwakwakiwak people and George Hunt and his family in particular shape the way that Boaz went about his work and how he conceptualized his work? And so, and I found in fact that there was a dramatic change. Whereas Boaz had entered the community essentially looking to collect and categorize their thoughts He was changed by the process of working with Hunt and his family toward a more communicative vision, where he began to serve as a kind of a host body, if you will, 
that is a, a vessel disseminating the narratives and within the narratives, particular messages of the members of the community. And so that was, uh, you know, on a philosophical level, that was a thoroughgoing shift because in the beginning, Boaz was looking at the things that he wanted to collect, like masks, these um, spectacular masks that all the Europeans wanted to gather as more or less signs. So you could collect the mask and then as an outsider, you could say, well, this means something specific, which I, the anthropologist, determine. The sign can be matched to the referent, and the more signs you collect, the, the more you know about the culture. So all of the power in this case is in the hands of the outsider, the anthropologist. And in fact, uh, it is his very outsiderness uh, that determines his authority. In the latter model, as Hunt and uh, the fellow members of his dance troupe at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 began to work with Boaz. They shared with him their understanding of these masks, and they looked at them more as vessels, which contain individual stories, um, and inside those stories, messages that could only be determined by the people who own the masks and tell the stories. And that's really a fundamental transformation, because the narrative power in this case belongs to the people who make the things, who own the stories, who do the motions of the dance, and who participate in the culture. The culture is sovereign, and the meanings are to be determined by the people who are within that sovereign culture. So moving toward that communicative model where anthropology becomes a kind of exchange of stories, rather than the, the, the collection, and in some cases actual raiding and theft of another people's culture, became quite significant. I think that that tension is always there in Boazian anthropology, but you see a direct, a very clear shift beginning in the 1890s uh, where there's an indigenous influence on Boaz's methodology. And this then would come to have ripple effects in his conceptualization of what the practice of human knowledge making should be about. So it it connects in some ways, I think, with what Ned was saying earlier. Uh, who, whose enlightenment is this going to be? Who is going to be enlightened? Who bears the power to enlighten someone else? And who is going to be receiving the enlightenment? So I think Boaz's shift toward a more open-ended kind of conceptualization of a, perhaps a shared enlightenment, where, where various people are capable of enlightening one another through an exchange, um, that that became very powerful. And in Tully's piece, for example, you see a kind of parallel between the indigenous visions of enlightenment um, or transformation, which I discuss, also which Ryan Carr uh, looks at, and the Boazian, the critical anthropological method um, that Tully um, brings out in Boaz's work. So I think between these various pieces, you see the move toward a kind of transcultural vision of mutual enlightenment, which would embody perhaps the more hopeful strands of what came out of Boazian anthropology. But at the same time, in, in using the study of mass and the collection of mass to get to the bottom of this story, I think I was also trying to reckon at an intimate and personal level with the problem of power. 
that is always at the basis of the anthropological enterprise. The second half of the anthology, how do the uh, four essays, and particularly in the penultimate section, but the last section as well, uh, reconfigure the mutual constitution and entanglement of indigeneity, race, and anthropology? And uh, particularly for the that final section, um, what are the uh, essayist contributions uh, regarding BOAS and global cultural studies? Professor Blackhawk, if you can comment first. The last essays really help deepen a sense of the terrain of engagement that characterized so many thinkers across the 20th century. Um, and many of these struggles, not only for liberation or political autonomy, had corollary and or supportive intellectual struggles in which national communities used anthropology or ethnography as a form of nationalist um, discursive uh, community construction. Um, one of the interesting chap uh, chapters in that uh, volume um, is the uh, Christopher Heaney piece that looks at debates about the relative capacity of pre-Columbian Indian or Incan communities to construct or utilize medical technologies for relieving certain types of uh, brain pressures um, and the kind of discursive dissonance that many archaeologists confronted, including one of uh, uh, Boaz's most influential students, um, Alfred Krober, um, their dissonance around the kind of inability to explain how it could be that pre-Columbian communities could have such extensive um, medical knowledge and even practices, as well as even utensils for um, accessing or uh, relieving brain pressures. And so Julio Tello is the kind of founding archaeological thinker in Peruvian anthropology, spent literally his life career trying to convince um, North American and European intellectuals that indeed his ancestors, those from Incan and Indian societies before Europeans arrived, uh, possessed certain forms of medical knowledge, called trepanation, that um, uh, he became uh, the world's leading kind of scholar upon or on. Um, so Heaney kind of looks at how important it was for Tello, uh, a Peruvian Andeanist, uh, to examine uh, pre-Columbian remains and societies um, in order to critique not necessarily a colonial form of dispossession or a, a structuring form of political um, tyranny, but an intellectual tradition that left out or removed certain peoples uh, over others. And so clearly, by the concluding portions of this volume, we hope, one can see the kind of larger trajectory, the larger contours of a global struggle for legitimacy, essentially, that indigenous peoples and thinkers like Tello have been engaged in for much of the past um, century and, 
um, if not more, uh, to reorganize the kind of structuring principles of anthropological thought, to find spaces within what we would call humanistic discourses, to find legitimacy as cultural uh, producers, as artists, as intellectuals, as writers, um, as essentially heirs to alternative forms of intellectual uh, traditions that are equally, um, if not um, uh, um, um, more adequately positioned to handle contemporary global challenges. And I think now in the 21st century, we are kind of positioned as a global community to think differently about certain forms of knowledge versus others and to see that there are no universal truths that um, one should uh, either aspire to or hold and that uh, certain types of uh, per, 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 um, kind of procedural or processual ideas um, need to be interrogated collectively rather than um, individually and or um, exclusively within certain sets of national communities. So the last chapters in this volume really are attempting to show this kind of global terrain and topography and to show how ideas both matter and became sites of struggle for larger um, social purposes. Dr. Wilner, do you have anything to add? I think the second half of the book was something that developed after the conference largely as we began to think through, you know, what aspects we really wanted to sharpen and emphasize. One thing that came out of it, just reading the contributions for me, was first of all, um, in that last part, how many contributors there had been worldwide to the concept of culture. So, you know, we think of it as this anthropology as sort of defining the boundaries of culture in a disciplinary fashion. But there are so many other thinkers um, who, like Julio Teo or, um, or like uh, Blyden or Armato in Sean Henretta's piece, and also Gilberto Freire, for example, uh, and Rudiger Bilden in uh, Maria Lucia Pallaris Burke's piece, who had a hand in shaping what, what became activated as the culture concept. So, um, Sort of rhyming with Ned was saying, we need to begin to look outside these both disciplinary and national conventions in order to recognize um, who actually shaped the production of modern knowledge. And when we do that, we gain a richer understanding of the concepts themselves and of the potential um, political valence and cultural valence and value of the concepts. And then I think the other thing that really came out reading over the finished book for me. Uh, was the staying power of race and racism. Uh, that is, the, the typical view of the Boazian circle or of Boaz's contribution is in some way that he replaced race with culture. In the first place, you know, I don't think that he did that because the dynamic Boazian culture concept that developed, which in the first place is fairly poorly understood, um, was never meant to be a replacement for race. So Boaz's intention in disproving the concept of race was to shatter any justification for mass violence and inequality or political empire. 
simply to shatter it and never to replace it. Um, but in the end, culture did come to play a role quite similar to race in some ways. That is as serving as a sort of explainer or even a justification for ideas of difference that further encoded hierarchies of inequality and what we would now call racial capitalism worldwide. So part of what you see, I think, in chapter three is Boazian intellectuals ranging, uh, ranging from Zora Neale Hurston to Archie Finney, um, who are traveling the world and in the process of engaging in this groundbreaking transnational cultural research, also grappling with um, racial difference, the perpetuation of racial difference to cement inequality, but also on their own part, racial identification. And, and I think as Benjamin Balthazar explores, uh, there emerges this idea within the Boazian circle that the burden of racism that is placed on the individual by the society somehow has to be reappropriated, that people have to assume some kind of a standpoint of ethnic and cultural pride, and they have to inhabit the position um, they've inherited in order to somehow transform it into some, something else, something that will do work for them, something that, that people can take possession of and use um, uh, for the betterment of themselves and their communities. So I think that kind of, um, the, the Boazian Circle's ongoing struggle with the problem of race, both in America and globally, is something that speaks to us, especially today and makes continuing engagement with these sorts of historical actors incredibly fruitful. Um, and of course, when you talk about race, you're perpetually talking about um, the legacies of slavery and of colonialism. Um, so just in rereading and finalizing the, that second half of the book, I was very much struck by how the history of race and colonialism has in some ways been silenced or marginalized from what we would consider um, both formal, uh, the formalized sort of intellectual history, as well as the formal history of anthropology. And part of our goal in this project was to bring that to the very center of the story uh, and to show that um, indigenous peoples and other racialized communities around the world have in fact exerted a profound influence on the development of modern thought in their efforts to overcome these disabling binaries. So I have uh, one uh, final question for either of you. Um, and it's, if you can comment on it, um, please, uh, or don't. Uh, Professor Blackhawk, um, you're working on a book or several books at this time. Um, is there anything you can share with our audience about um, your current projects, as well as Dr. Wilner, your, uh, the book that, or actually the research that you're uh, currently doing at the University of Chicago? Professor Blackhawk, first, really briefly, if you, if you can. Um, I'm happy to share that um, I continue to uh, both teach and write about Native American history and am um, excited to uh, be um, both closer to uh, completion of and now under contract for a new volume 
um, that attempts to reinterpret uh, Native American history um, in a fairly uh, synthetic and kind of broad-ranging temporal form. So I'm uh, writing a book that I'm uh, titling uh, The Rediscovery of America, American Indians and the Unmaking of U.S. History uh, that tries to highlight a whole generation or even more of recent scholarly findings in the field of Native American history that have collectively uh, really broken apart and or unmade, as the subtitle suggests, structuring, organizing principles in American historical inquiry. Um, it's still um, not fully completed, nor likely will be for uh, an academic year or two, um, but I've made a significant progress to the point where I'm happy discussing. Thank you. Dr. Wilner? I'm also completing a book, uh, which is about the indigenous influences on modern thought. And it focuses in particular on some of the themes that you'll see in that transformation mass chapter. So it deals with George Hunt and his family and um, their long-term working relationship with Boaz and their influence on uh, the transformation of ideas of race, culture, and language. Um, uh, so I'll be working on that here in in Chicago. And I'm also very much interested in the development of what you might call a global history of knowledge. So studying more broadly the roles of various non-state peoples um, uh, in the development of modern thought. So it's sort of an ongoing project that sprang in part out of this conference. Well, thank you both for uh, being on the show today. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you discussing the conceptual scope of the book, as well as putting uh, the dialogues and even individual essays into dialogue. Uh, this is Ryan Tripp on behalf of Professor Blackhawk, Dr. Wilner, the New Books Network, and the Native American Studies Channel, signing off, and we'll see you, or we'll hear you, next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.